0: will find this very relevant for our own context today as well. Well, it really goes without saying that Christians are in a battle for the truth of God in the generation that we belong to. We are very much in a conflict with those who want to undermine and overthrow God's truth, God's gospel, God's church, everything really that is down through the years, valuable uh, to Christians. And how great a benefit it is for us that we can actually come from the context that we are in and find that the Bible speaks into that context very directly. You go back to the Bible, you find down through the course of the centuries that Christians have faced exactly the same situation, the same problems, the same challenges, the same difficulties, But you'll find, as you do in this psalm, that we are given a lot of uh, light as to how to conduct ourselves in that situation, what is required of us in that situation, where we find our confidence in that situation. And all of that is packed into this very short psalm. It's a psalm that's crucial for ourselves as individuals in times of crisis. It's a cry for help. On the part of David, but it's not simply with a view to his own comfort, to his own life individually or personally. It is that, but it's also a cry for help that God would come and deal with the situation that he finds himself in. A situation where so much of uh, what he sees around him is simply the bravado of sin. And where he seeks that that will be changed by the Lord's own intervention. So he finds his comfort and his confidence as he comes back to think about God, not just in God himself, but in the words of God and in the promises of God for the keeping of his people safe. So that's the kind of thing that we require as we come to our own times. I need not tell you, you're very much aware yourselves, that as uh, truth is relegated so sin comes to be promoted. The more you relegate truth, the more you'll find that sin is exalted. And the more you find that people will uh, unashamedly come uh, to promote the ways of sin, of immorality, of debauchery even. The less you have of truth stands logically, the less influence you have on people's lives. When we're talking about truth, Uh, We're not talking about just telling truth. We're not talking just about the opposite of lies. Truth in the absolute sense is what we're talking about. Because when you come to the Bible and it's teaching on truth, you find that this in fact is itself God's truth. God's truth revealed to us, spoken out by Him. Truth ultimately is God Himself. That's why Jesus, the Son of God, could say, as He said, As you find in in, in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if Jesus were not God, as well as man, it would be the height of arrogance for any mere human being to say, I am the truth. We can say as Christians, we know the truth, we value the truth, we promote the truth as far as possible, we defend the truth, but none of us would ever have the audacity to say, I am the truth. Only God can do that. And everything that we know as revealed truth, the truth that is especially set out for us in the written word of God in the Bible, is something that has come, that has all come and is derived from the fact that God Himself is the truth in the absolute sense. So let's look. two things. Firstly, David's cry to God. We'll look at David's cry, first of all, looking at the crisis that he describes. And then secondly, his cry out to God and what that included. And then we'll briefly look at God's answer as well, uh, where God uh, in verse 5 especially speaks back to David as to how he is going to arise and come to hear in response as he's heard the words. Of David's prayer. Then we'll look at, secondly, David's confidence in God, which will include the words of God and also the people of God in verses 6 to 8. So first of all, David's cry to God, and then we'll look at David's confidence in God. Here's his cry to God. Here's the crisis that he's describing. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, our lips are ours, they belong to us. Who is master over us? So David is describing the society that he finds in his own day, the situation, the conditions, the crisis that he cries out of. He knows that the godly have become few. That those who are faithful to God have virtually vanished from the face of the earth. At least that's how it feels to him. That's how he himself senses things. That's what he's aware of. The scarcity of those who uphold the truth is his great complaint to God. It's that which he brings to God. And there's plenty around, he says, of talk, But the talk that he's aware of uh, uh, on the part of those that he's describing, it's uh, flattery, it's lying, it's boasting, it's smooth talk. And he tells us it actually comes from a double heart. People whose hearts are not stable because uh, we know that only the truth of God will in fact keep your heart stable and put your heart together the way that it should. It's interesting if you go to uh, Psalm 86 Just briefly flick forward there to a verse that we often sing, but perhaps don't just stop to think about what it says in uh, Psalm 86 and verse 11 there, where he says, Lord, teach me your way that I might walk in your truth. And then he says, unite my heart to fear your name. Now, it's interesting that he speaks there about God's truth, and something that he himself wants God to teach him to walk in the way of his truth. But to do that, he says, Unite my heart to fear your name. Why does our heart need to be united? What leaves our heart in this situation, this in this condition that it needs to be united? What does it mean that it's disunited? Well, your heart is disunited, and mine is disunited, because that's part of the ravages of sin, isn't it? You find that in uh, our lives as they are without God's grace coming to powerfully influence and change our lives. What is uh, the case with our soul? Well, all of these faculties of your soul, your mind, your conscience, your will, your emotions, it's not that they're not working, but they're not working properly. And they're not working properly in relation to each other. Because sin has broken down the relationship between the matters of our heart or of our soul, which is really what David means in Psalm 86 there. Uh, His heart, he means his whole inner being. United, Lord, he says, put it together for me so that by that I may walk in your truth. Teach me to walk in your truth. That's what we need. That's what people everywhere need. That's what we need throughout our society. That's what you and I need. Our heart to be United. That's what grace does. Sin breaks things down, breaks things up. Sin breaks us inwardly. Sin breaks us in our relationships. Grace mends. God in his grace, God in his power, God in his love. Because God's love, as all true love, is a unifying thing. It's something which puts together what was broken as it founded. So here is David saying, They speak with a double heart. And from that double heart comes that sort of language. How do you apply that in our own context today? It would be very easy to exaggerate things. It would be very easy to fall into um, the trap of thinking there are no good people but ourselves. That would have been entirely wrong. But how do you apply this? Well, for one thing, look around you and you see... And we've come to be a generation really that by and large puts style above substance. You see, when you do away with the truth of God, you've got to put something else in its place. You always will put something else in its place. And if you do away with truth which really has substance to it, then what you're putting in its place always or almost always will be things to do with image and with style, things without substance as such, things which are not lasting, things which are of secondary importance. Things which are physical rather than deeply spiritual. And that's really the situation David finds. If you, if you listen to um, interviews nowadays, whether it's on the news or in other programs, and people are being asked about uh, a certain situation that uh, they're asked to comment on, or something that's happened in their own lives that's caused maybe uh, some uh, difficulty or challenge for them, um, or something they disagree with, very often you'll find the interviewer saying, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? And you see, there's a, subtle, there's a subtle change in that from what really used to be asked, instead of how do you feel about that, if you went back a sufficient number of years, the interviewer would say, "How? what do you think about that? What are your thoughts about that? You see, we've come to be a generation that has been led away from giving our minds to something to just feeling about something. To really thinking through situations to just expressing them emotionally. And David is saying that's what what comes from laying the truth of God aside. Because when you value God's truth, when you're serious about the Bible, you've got to think. And you've got to think through the things of life. You don't just go to the Bible and read it through as if it's just a novel. novel, of course, should also in its own way make us think. But when you're coming to the Bible as God's revelation of himself to us, what he's like, what we're like, what sort of situation we are in in the world, what we need for our lives, it has to be something that you think through. Look at how often the New Testament, in Paul's letters especially, uses the word mind. Uses the word mind. Because the mind in our human being and makeup is that which really feeds, if you like, the rest of our faculties. What goes through to your mind is then, if you like, filtered through to your will and to your conscience. So when you have to uh, bring uh, bring your life up to the light of God's Word, it makes you think, or it should make us think. You see, Paul said to the Romans, for example, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind is what happens when God's grace takes you and changes you from someone unsaved to someone who's saved, from someone who doesn't really care much about God to somebody for whom God is the all-consuming matter of your life. That doesn't come about without thinking, nor does your Christian progress, your Christian growth. That's Paul to Peter, um, in his uh, letter, in his uh, as he came to conclude all that he had said in uh, writing to those that he was writing to in his own situation uh, where he was saying grow in grace and in the knowledge of God and in Christ. The knowledge or that mind of yours comes to assimilate and apply to your life. So here is what David is actually saying all of that really grows out of it Because this is what he's saying his situation is, and that's the situation we're in ourselves today as you apply that. You think of the way language is being, or has been, and is being deconstructed. Words that used to mean certain things have come to be turned around to mean something else. And words that uh, language is uh, deconstructed sometimes to just desensitize people to what the Bible calls sin. Just one example. Hugely important matter in our day and it's currently in the news particularly in America and that's the issue of abortion. Something that's difficult to speak about but we have to speak about it. Look at the way that language is used just to desensitize people to what happens in abortion. Spoken of, for example, as the termination of a pregnancy. But so is birth. So is the birth of a living child. The termination of a pregnancy avoids avoids making the kind of personal reference that would conclude this is actually the murder of a human being. That's why it's the kind of language that's used there just to get people away from thinking of what is actually happening. And you can apply that to other areas of ethics and morality as well. And Christians have to be wise to that and tactfully and lovingly respond to that by saying, look, the use of language doesn't actually in any way, however much it desensitizes people in their, in their minds from thinking about being sinful or wrong, doesn't actually change the issue. That's what our generation really needs to be brought back to the Scriptures, to the Bible, to the truth of God, to have hearts united by God. It's interesting, isn't it, that along with all of that, you have a growing insistence on individual rights, on individual rights as you find in verse 4 there. uh, The tongue that makes great boasts who says, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are ours. Who is master over us? That's the voice of today saying, I have my individual rights. I'm in charge of my own life. I don't need a minister. I don't need a politician. I don't need anybody to tell me how to live my life. I will live it the way I like. That's the situation David was facing then. Those who expressed themselves in that sort of arrogant boastful proud way and he's praying to God it's interesting when you go to the book of Revelation which isn't the easiest book in the Bible to read or understand by any means but the outline of it is uh, fairly straightforward there's Christ and his church uh, challenged by Satan and his assistants the beast the false prophet That's what they're called. We're not going to go into the deputation of that tonight, but it's interesting that uh, one of Satan's great helpers is the false prophet. And false prophets abound in the New Testament. That's what Elijah had to face. That's what Isaiah had to face. That's what all the prophets of God in their own generation had to face because the false prophet smoothly butters people up, flatters people, prevents them from knowing the truth of God course the outcome as the Bible tells us and shows us is disaster and that false prophecy sadly is very much a matter of the church itself in its decline no longer being true to God and to his truth and setting the truth aside and living by other philosophies instead there is David's Crisis, and there's David. Secondly, the cry to God, where he's saying, "Save, O Lord!" You see, that word "save" is so important. It's not just the word "help." It includes the idea of help, but he's very uh, carefully using the word "save." It's from a big root in the Old Testament, from which you get the word "Messiah," the word "salvation." Savior, All these are from the same root as this word in this verb, save, this imperative that David is putting to God. Why is that? Because David knows that only God's intervention actually is going to change things. Have we got this into our heads tonight? Are we pressing upon our people in the generation that we belong to? That the situation that exists in our land, amongst our people, the crisis that we know of, that's described in the likes of Psalm 12 and elsewhere, the only solution to that is to bring it before God and seek that God himself would intervene by the power of his truth. Save, Lord. Deliver us from this, Lord. That's what he's saying. Pretty much saying in that use of that one word, save, or these words, save, O Lord. It's David acknowledging, Lord, if you don't help us, we're done for. We're just going to go further on into this pit of darkness. But you, Lord, can do it. And we're appealing to you, save. Take us out of this extremity. And that's what we must do Likewise, we have to be convinced, friends, tonight that the crisis we're facing is far too, uh, far too great for any political philosophy, uh, for any philosophy at all, in fact, for any human philosophy. How much, however much we may find that people are very sincere and very genuine in trying to solve things that way, and we have to support them and pray for them where they are not in, uh, in uh, opposition to God's truth. We need more than that. We need God. We need to be saved. We need the intervention of a Savior, the only Savior who can come to our aid. We have the privilege, friends, of coming to the God we know answers prayer, God who's ridiculed, the God we're advised to throw aside, God, when advised is outdated and belongs to an old book that's no longer relevant. You know that that God listens to your prayer, hears your cry just as much as he did in the days of David, and as you come to cry to him, you can actually plead with him as David is pleading to come to deal with one well, you know, see what he says is pretty uh it's pretty a uh, Strong language, isn't it? we saying that, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Now, you mustn't conclude from that that inevitably David wants all of these people destroyed. It's not really what he's saying at all. What he is saying is, May God intervene to change this, to cut off the flattery and to replace it with truth. And only God has the capacity to silence the big talkers the big worldly talkers of any generation. But he's appealing to God in a way that knows that that's the case. And what is God's answer? Well, he's saying here, because the poor are plundered, verse 5, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And that's very interesting and significant the way that... uh, You find in the Old Testament especially this word arise used of the Lord. Sometimes the prayer itself calls upon the Lord to arise as if the Lord were sleeping. You see he's talking about times when the power of the Lord is required. When it has uh, uh, receded because of the arrogance and sin of human beings that have provoked him. And uh, David is appealing here to God to intervene. And sometimes you find elsewhere in the Psalms, Arise, Lord. As if he's saying to God, Stir yourself up, Lord. You See, we can use bold language. It's not uh, language that's irreverent, that's unbecoming of us when we come to God, to say to God, Arise, O Lord. Show yourself, stir yourself up, come for our salvation, stir up your strength and mighty sails elsewhere. You have the privilege, you praying people of God, you have the privilege uh, of coming before God and the ability to use that language. And God will respect the use that you make of that boldness that you have as a child of God. Don't neglect it. Take the examples that you find in the Bible, such as here, and come before God, and wait in the presence of God until your heart comes to be warmed by the need for God to intervene as you see it, and appeal to Him to stir Himself up. And you see what David is saying, what God is saying, I will now arise. Isn't it marvelous the way that you find throughout the Psalms, David um, actually speaking about the circumstances he was in, and then he cried to God, then he speaks about God's answer. Nowhere better than you find in uh, Psalm 18, um, where you find a minister's distress calling upon the Lord. Verse 6, To my God I cried for help from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears, then you find the most of the psalm, the rest of the psalm, is taken up with God's answer. And what an answer! Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. He rode on a cherub and he flew. He made the darkness his covering. He thundered in the heavens. The voice of the Most High um, uttered. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. All the way through there you find time after time, building up all of these upheavals in the creation, you might say. And they're all an answer to David's prayer. It's David's way of saying, when the Lord answers, you never know what he's going to do. Isn't that great? And I climbed up these pulpit steps tonight, and I try... Allow a personal reference. I try and think about this in the vestry before I come through and come to the pulpit, which is always a great privilege, of course. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, one of the most exciting times in his life was when he climbed the steps of the pulpit because, he says, before you come back down again, you never know what God is going to do. And it's the same when you come to pray to God. Oh, you might be saying, as I often say about my prayer to God, how poor it is, how pathetic I am in prayer compared to others, if I was to compare myself to others, and especially with those saints of the Bible. But when you open your mouth and cry to God, remember this, you may be very surprised at God's answer and what God is going to do. Now he says, God God says, I will... Now arise. You see, God, like a sleeping giant, sometimes stirs himself up in answer to his people's prayer. Never lose sight of that when you come before God in prayer. You may not see it instantly. You may not even see it through the whole of your lifetime. Your lifetime. But when God has his moment that he has chosen to answer the prayer of his people for his intervention, he really does come to intervene mightily. And That's where we have tonight our view of God from this psalm. I will now arise, says the Lord. And that brings us to David's confidence. Here's David's cry out of the crisis, the cry that he makes, and briefly God's answer. I'm just enclosing God's confidence in God, David's confidence in God. And verse six, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Sometimes we need to be reassured of just what the Bible is. And here is God reassuring us through David that the words of the Lord are pure words. You see the contrast? Contrast deliberately to the beginning of the psalm. The words of those who speak lies with flattering lips, with a double heart, who say our lips are ours, those who boast to use this kind of language, the words of the Lord are pure words. There's nothing in them at all of anything that is of uh, sin, that is unreliable, that you cannot trust in. They are pure words. And you notice the illustration he's giving like silver refined in a furnace on the ground or a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You come to burn silver, gold, metal, like that precious metal, you're burning off the dross. Not that he's suggesting that God's words had any dross, but what he is saying with the purity of pure silver is an illustration of God's pure words. There's no defect in them. You can absolutely absolutely trust in them. I think there is also the idea, and it's just like silver goes through a process of refinement. It's quite often called. Uh, testing as well. It's a process through which silver goes in order to produce the pure metal. Well, there's the idea in this, I think, that God's Word has been thoroughly tested down through the generations of the world's history. All the way from the first believers in the world, God's Word has been tested, put to the test. And it hasn't just survived... It's always overcome. It's always proved itself superior when God comes to show its superiority. We need that confidence in the gospel. We need that confidence in the word of God when it's so uh, very much tested and when we are very much tested in regard to our belief in the Bible itself as God's word, God's truth. Have you ever thought how incredible a thing it is that the Bible still exists? That the Word of God still exists in our possession as we have it in written form? Go back over the centuries in the history of the world. Look at the many, many attempts that have been made in the history of the world, in the history of God's church to destroy the truth and is still there in its integrity untouched because you see you cannot destroy the truth you can undermine it you can misrepresent it you can do all sorts of things that will seek to put it aside you can stop using it but you cannot destroy it simply because it is in itself truth It is God's truth. It is out of himself. The battle is still raging as you come to the end of the psalm. And just in case we were lulled into a false sense of security going through the psalm and coming to this confidence that he has in God's word, rightly so, and then saying in verse 7 that God is indeed going to guard his people That he's going to look after them, he's going to keep them from whatever assaults come their way. They're never going to be ultimately destroyed. But he says in verse 8: on every side the wicked prowl. That's a word which means really walk openly. They're walking about openly. The wicked are walking about openly on every side as vileness is exalted among the children of man. That's what we said at the beginning. The more you put truth down, the more you relegate it, the more you put it aside, the more you're going to exalt vileness. There's a lot of vileness exalted in our generation. It's a tragedy. It's an awful thing to see. People destroying their own lives and doing it in a way that they think they know best. That's not what we were made for. We were made to value God's truth, to live by God's truth, to promote God's truth, to love God's truth. And what he's saying here the wicked are walking openly. Look at the boldness, the brashness, the self confidence of sin in our day and of the promotion of sin on the part of those who choose to do that. Well, don't lose your confidence. We're going to sing from Psalm 37 in a moment. And As I was going through it yesterday, a thought came to me that we should read Psalm 37 very, very often. Let me just close with why that is so true. Because Psalm 37... It's a psalm that fits in so much with what we're seeing in Psalm 12 tonight. Here's the way that uh, the psalm of David, Psalm 37, begins. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord. All the way down through the psalm, he is comparing those who oppose God with those who, had his own, his own generation, are faithful to God but suffer for it. What well, he's saying, what David is saying there is, but think of the ultimates. Think of destiny. Take a long term view. Think of the end of both of these categories. And the end for the wicked is absolutely terrible. The end for the faithful is indescribably great. You know, the best commentary on that beatitude of Jesus, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The best commentary you'll find on that is Psalm 37. Check it out. Check it out in a way that would follow David's reasoning in Psalm 12 to seek that the Lord will come and bless not only us but the generation that we form part of. May he bless to us his own word. Let's conclude by singing from Psalm 37. We're singing from verse 7 to 11 in the older version in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 7, uh, 37 at verse 7, it's on page 253. We'll sing to verse 11. Rest in the Lord, and patiently wait for him. Do not fret for him who, prospering in his way, success and sin doth get. Do thou from anger cease, and wrath see thou forsake also. Fret not thyself in any wise, that evil thou shouldst do. Singing down as far as verse 11. But by inheritance the earth the meek ones shall possess. They also shall delight themselves in an abundant peace. These verses in conclusion. to the side door to my right this evening. And now may the peace of of God, the grace of God, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore.